0: Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful gift that we have of corporate worship. And we pray even now that you would allow us, Father, to remove distractions from our hearts and minds. That you would allow us to be people who focus our attention on what you would have to say to us this morning. We know that when we open up the Bible, we are opening up your word. And you are revealing yourself to us, the greatness of who you are your gospel, the good news of the person and the work of your son, Jesus Christ, through whom there is salvation and forgiveness and reconciliation with with you. Father, help us to be attentive even now. Make us soft and tender and teachable to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of this morning's message is Perspective in the Face of Trouble. Perspective in the Face of Trouble. And I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 is going to be sort of our base verse. But we're going to be all over the book of Romans uh, this morning. And as you turn there, um, I'm sure that you would agree that we're living in troubling times, aren't we? Um, Yesterday morning, my dear wife uh, Andrea and I got up at the crack of dawn. And we were thinking, you know what, if we get up early enough on a Saturday morning and uh, go shopping maybe things won't be as hectic and as crazy as every other day or later on that day and um boy were we in for a rude awakening um uh, we obviously prayed before we took off and just prayed for our attitudes and just opportunities to just be a blessing uh, to people we may come across but then let me tell you it was quite an adventure it was quite an adventure to be out shopping i mean we couldn't find food anywhere aisle after aisle of food aisles were empty especially in the meat sections i'm sure you've already experienced that bare aisles toilet paper and wipes not a chance finding a parking spot a huge challenge getting a shopping cart for crying out loud took a miracle i mean when was the last time you showed up to some kind of a of a place and you couldn't get a cart and you had to wait for people to walk out of the store to free up their carts to get a cart amazing Amazing. As I said, we went to one market after another. No food, but not to worry. Okay, in case you guys get concerned, eventually the Lord provided most of what the Hernandez family needed by his grace, so thank the Lord for that. But you know what was most eye-opening about yesterday? The attitudes of people. The attitudes of people that we came across. I mean, we witnessed people snapping at each other. We witnessed one guy... Storming out of a market, furious in an outrage that there was no more food, whatever he was looking for. A young girl almost got run over by a stressed-out driver in one of the intersections. Two cars ran red lights in an effort to get somewhere or to get a parking spot. I mean, it was just craziness. On and on, we were exposed to various things. And as I mentioned earlier, we had prayed that God would, would just allow us in some way to be a blessing to somebody that we were exposed to. And he was very gracious to do so. We were at one particular store, and we decided to buy a couple of pizzas for our kids. You can figure out through that what store we were at. And the poor little lady at the pizza window looked so bad and just so discouraged. So I asked her, I said, hey, how are you holding up? Boy, talk about opening up a can of worms. She says, I'm so exhausted, she said. Yesterday, can you believe it? She said, fights broke out and they even had to temporarily close up the store just for a few hours. And I just wanted to go home, she said, and I just wanted to go home and and cry on my bed. Man, I said to her, I'm so, so sorry. Thank you for your service. At another store, we were in an endless line, it seemed, and and my wife saw this young mom visibly distraught. She had sat her little girl um, off to the side where she can actually see her instead of having her stand in this long line at the market, and my wife basically allowed this young mom who just had a couple of items to get um, in front of her, and she was so grateful that we would even do that where everybody's fighting to just make sure that nobody cuts them off in line. Still, while in this line, there was a little elderly couple right behind us, and And all I had to say to this little little elderly couple was crazy times, huh? They said, yes, all of these people, the little lady, the wife said, I mean, my husband and I have never seen anything like this. It's just us with all this little food that we're buying here and we're having to get in these long lines and look at all the food that these people are buying. Yeah, we answered as they looked at our cart, right? So, well, we have five children. You can imagine how much food we have to get. So we had a good conversation with them. It was an encouraging conversation. On and on the adventure went. And you know what we found? That a simple how are you or a simple smile goes a long way. Because right now, people are not smiling. People are not even conversing. People are not laughing. And so that goes a long way to just get people to relax just a little bit. So in some, it was quite the adventure to say the least. And I want you to know that though these are some funny things that I'm sharing. um, I'm not trying in any way to make light of the situation. I want you to know that. We should be sensitive to the needs that are going on around us. We should have hearts of compassion. We should weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. I simply want us to see, however, that there is a general loss of perspective, isn't there? That living joyfully, loving other people, thoughtfulness, kindness toward others is out the window it's not common right now and the focus seems to be on survival survival is the goal for most people that we are exposed to right now but beloved what I want us to consider and think and ponder this morning is that for the Christian it should not be this way For Christians, survival is not the goal in the present time. It never has been for us. The goal for the believer is living well in these troubling times for God's glory and by the grace of God. Let me repeat that. The goal for us is living well in the midst of our trials in these troubling times for the glory of God and by the grace of God. Because we are so weak and we experience the same frailties of humanity, don't we? And my desire as your pastor and for us as elders is that you and I during these troubling times would not waste this trial. Don't waste this trial. But instead, you and I need to learn the lessons that a good and kind and loving Heavenly Father is allowing us to go through at this time. What are those lessons that God is teaching us through this trial? And so I want to Talk to you and I this morning about perspective in the midst of troubling times or in the face of troubling times. What does a God-glorifying perspective look like for you and I? And I want us to consider three principles here of a God-glorifying perspective. And I think, first of all, that a God-glorifying perspective begins with the way that we think. A God-glorifying perspective is shaped by right thinking. It is shaped by right thinking. This is where it began for Paul. He was a Christian whose thinking was shaped by who God is, by God's gospel, the good news concerning the person and the work of his son Jesus, who came into the world to die for sinners, so that by believing in him, we can be forgiven and reconciled. Paul's mind was shaped by biblical truth. And I want you to notice this in verse 18 of Romans 8. For I consider, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. Let that sink in for a minute, what he just said. Let it sink in. At a time where there's so much suffering, and a time when it's so difficult right now for people and for us included. That that statement in verse 18 could come across Sort of disingenuine, right? Sort of insensitive, right? I mean, Paul, don't you see the suffering all around the world? How can you say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us? Do you not see what's happening? But what I want you to think about is that Paul's statement here is his heartfelt conviction because he's informed by the gospel and by biblical truth, by what God's word says. That word consider there in verse 18 is the Greek word logizomai, from which we get logic. It means to count or to reckon or to think. It was used in the field of mathematics, of calculating mathematical equations and numbers carefully. It's a mind word. It's a thinking word. So Paul's conviction has truth as its substance. I want us to see this. And as he contemplates in, in Romans chapter 8, the, the present world and the suffering that exists in the world, and he makes this statement in verse 18, I want you to know that underline, undergirding that statement in verse 18 are, is, are, are two realities, two biblical realities that he has in mind. His perspective is shaped by two truths or realities. And the first reality is that we live in a fallen world. Paul knows that we live in a fallen world. This fallenness is signaled in verse 18 by his mention of of the sufferings of the present time. In other words, we live in a world that is fallen, that is broken where there's much suffering and this suffering began in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall of man when Adam and Eve sin plunged humanity into a state of sin and there's this vicious cycle as you read the bible the word of god there's this vicious cycle of people are born people sin people die people are born people sin and rebel and people die it's a vicious cycle Since Genesis 3, the world has gone terribly wrong because of man's sin. And everyone knows this. Everyone knows this. Even the so-called atheist, the so-called agnostic, the so-called skeptic, knows that there's something wrong with this world. That things are not as they should be. Paul mentions this reality. If you notice in Romans 8 and verse 20. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Paul is speaking of the the fallen world in which we live here. And in fact, if you turn with me back to Romans chapter 1. He speaks of the effects or the characteristics of a broken, fallen world. In his articulation of the good news, he begins in Romans 1.18 with the wrath of God. For the wrath of God, he says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Paul's point again and again in Romans 1, all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20 or so, is that men have sinned against God. They've suppressed the truth of Him. They've denied His existence. They've redefined Him to be a God of their own creation, not according to what His Word reveals. And for this reason, three different times in Romans chapter 1, God gives people over. Verse 24, Therefore, because people have denied God's existence, redefined Him. Verse 24, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. We live in a fallen world, full of people who are sinful and rebellious. In chapter 3, if you look there with me, Paul in verse 10 says essentially that no one is acquitted from this rebellion. That every single person born into this world, that there is none who is good, there is none righteous, chapter 3 verse 10, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. You think he's trying to make a point? Not even one person is... Acquitted from this. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So there is none righteous, Paul says. All have sinned. All have a need of of a righteousness outside of themselves. Each and every single person outside of Christ is condemned in this fallen world. As a leadership this past week, we had a wonderful opportunity to spend time with um, Alexander Struck who is a godly man, godly Christian pastor, has written a couple of very influential books on eldership and um, on deacons, probably the two best books out there from in my opinion. Just got a wonderful opportunity to spend a breakfast with them and just to converse with him, both as leaders and then after my wife and I took him to the airport and had some more time with him. And at least three or four different times in our formal time with our leadership or even when my wife and I took him out, he made this statement in the context of talking about everything that's going on in the world. He said, the fingerprints of the fall are everywhere. The fingerprints of the fall are everywhere. That's it. That's it. That's helpful for us to remember, isn't it? It doesn't solve all of our questions or removes all of our pain, but it helps to... Put things in perspective so that we're not shocked by things that happen in our world even though we might be perplexed and we might have questions about why and at this time and all of that. So the first reality that shapes Paul's thinking is that we live in a fallen world but if this is where he left it, he would leave things life would be pretty hopeless, right? There's suffering in the world deal with it end the story but that's not all that shapes us thinking. The second great reality that shapes Paul's thinking is that though we live in a fallen world, we hope for a future glory. That as Christians, if we trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we don't grieve or get sad as those who have no hope. But our hope is not found in comfortable circumstances, in safety and security, in wealth, health, and prosperity. No, beloved, our hope is otherworldly, if I could put it this way. Otherworldly. And Paul zeroes in on this hope of Christ. If you look with me in chapter 3 and verse 21, after having established that all men are sinners and all men are condemned because of their sin against God and they're rebelling against their holy and righteous creator, look at what he says in chapter 3 and verse 21. But now, contrast, apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's established that, right? All have sinned. Nobody can meet God's ri- holy and righteous and perfect standard in thought and word and deed. All of us have sinned against the holy God, and thus we are condemned and separated from Him. But look at verse 24. Being justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Paul says, apart from your own performance, anything good that you could ever do apart from Jesus, God is offering you a righteousness outside of yourself. And that righteousness is found in Jesus, the Redeemer, the one who died on the cross to pay for sins, absorb God's wrath for your sins on the cross. And he alone is able to redeem you, to buy you out of the marketplace of sin and purchase you for himself that you would serve him. Verse 25, whom God, Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. What's that word propitiation? It means that Jesus is God's wrath removing sacrifice, wrath appeasing sacrifice. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, verse 26, I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul's point is, says, apart from your performance, apart from any goodness in you, apart from the fact that you, that you seek to earn God's favor, you cannot earn God's favor, God can save you based upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And all of this, of course, is applied to a person by faith for the person who trusts in Jesus Christ. And that's why Romans 4 is all about the example of, of Abraham, the chief example of a man who trusted God and received the promises. It's by faith that salvation can be applied to us. Faith in Christ, Jesus alone as our Redeemer. And what is the result of putting our trust in Christ? Look at Romans chapter 5, and verse 1. Therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. And then in chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul concludes this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ponder that for a minute, beloved. No matter what is going on in the world around us, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is no, 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 no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. None. You are at peace with God through faith in Christ. Not only have you been declared not guilty, but you've been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. Christ has taken your sin upon himself, absorbed your punishment, and in turn we've received his righteousness as believers, as Christians. This is why Paul says in chapter 7, verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to Him. The Deliverer, the Rescuer, is Christ and Christ alone. So notice, even though for Paul there is the reality of the fall, there is the greater reality of King Jesus who has given us hope. He is the greater reality. This is why he says at the end of verse 20 of chapter 8, he says, in hope, in hope, because even though there is a fallen, broken world, God subjected creation to futility in hope, in hope found in who? In Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone. And this is why in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul can say to Christians, therefore, If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, Christian, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You see, our hope, Christian, is otherworldly. It's found in Jesus Christ. Now, pay special attention to this. With these two realities in mind, the reason why Paul can say in verse 18 this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. The reason he can say this is because his thinking is shaped by those two realities that we just contemplated. The reality of a fallen world and yet the amazing greater reality of future hope found in Jesus Christ. So biblical truth, God's word, God's revelation shapes, informs, frames this man's thinking. I mean, as he looks at the world and all the suffering in the world, he's not just, Paul is not just some positive thinker. He's into positive thinking. I don't want to be negative. I'm just going to focus on the positives. So I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be revealed. With the glory that is to be, uh, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. Paul is not just trying to be a positive thinker here. Paul is not an escapist, escaping reality. I'm just going to suppress reality, the reality of suffering, and I'm going to just focus on the positives, pretend that all is well, sweep this under the rug so that it makes me feel good. None of these man-centered ideologies are what Paul is doing. That drives him to say verse eighteen. It's because his mind and his heart are shaped by what the risen, exalted Christ has accomplished on the cross for a sinner such as himself, that Paul is able to say, I consider the sufferings of this present time as not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in Jesus Christ. You can say that because Christ is the basis of his hope. Because Christ is the basis of his heartfelt conviction, beloved. And may I ask you this morning, in the face of your own trials, and in the face of our present troubling times, is this your heartfelt conviction in verse 18? Can you say that you are looking forward to the glory that is to be revealed in Jesus Christ, even amidst everything that is going on? You see, with every trial, with every trial that we face, including the present one, there is a battle for your mind that is taking place. For how you think and perceive the current situation. There's a battle going on for your thinking. And the reality of it is, is, it is hard. I certainly don't want to downplay the hardship and the difficulties that we are experiencing. We certainly prayed yesterday, my wife and I, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't be driven by that. That's why we, we've been in prayer, it seems like, more than ever now trying to understand what God is doing and trying to make sure that we're grabbing on, holding on to the, to the horns of the altar and saying, oh, God, help us. Help us to have a right perspective. So it is difficult. And Christians are not people who, because we believe and we trust God and we trust in his sovereignty over all things, Christians are not people who are reckless or careless or carefree or insensitive with regards to difficult circumstances or the suffering of mankind. Absolutely not. And yes, it's important to stay informed by accurate and helpful information that might be helpful for us of what's going on. We certainly don't want to be oblivious to what is happening. But hear me, as far as the hopelessness and the despair that we see around us, beloved, let us have our minds shaped and framed by God's word and his gospel. This is why Paul later on in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 instructs Christians to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of their minds. How might they do that? By means of the word of God. By means of truth. So that we trust in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, may I encourage us and exhort us. Let us not profess to know God and yet operate like practical atheists. Our hope and our rest is in Christ. Christ. And it's in the fires of trial and trouble that Christ shines brightest through us. And we need his grace for that to happen. Paul, by the grace of God alone, wanted to shine the light of Christ in the face of his troubles or the troubles that he saw in the world. And this began with his thinking being shaped by truth, by truth. That's why he could say what he says in verse 18. Secondly, secondly, a God-glorifying perspective stimulates joyful anticipation. A God-glorifying perspective stimulates joyful anticipation of future glory. I want you to notice that as Paul contemplates a fallen, broken world, his heart affections are moved. They're stimulated or awakened to anticipate the glory that is to come. Notice the language in verse 19. To intensely express his joyful longing for Christ in future glory. He says in verse 19, he speaks of creation's anxious longing that waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Strong language. And then notice in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Talk about descriptive and vivid language there. Full of emotion, Paul says, you know how intensely a fallen world longs for the making right of all things? It's like a woman in labor whose birth pangs are reflective of an, of an intensive and painful process and longing for that baby to arrive. But when that baby arrives, there is exceeding joy. Exceeding joy. Notice then how he relates such joyful anticipation to us in verse 23. And not only this, not only does creation long and groan for the making right of it all, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Three different times, he says, ourselves He's relating this this longing, this anticipation to us who are believers that just as a woman in labor longs for that baby to arrive, so we too, beloved, in the face of trouble and pain, joyfully anticipate the future glory that is to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow. Wow. And brothers and sisters, I hope and I pray, me included, that we are learning the lessons that God would have us learn during this time. I hope and pray that we are growing in our longing for King Jesus. That we cry out, Lord, come. Lord, come. Come. Because Christ is the only one that can give hope. Boy, it's so hard to have that kind of perspective, isn't it? I think the Lord knows this. I think this is why Paul, as he contemplates this fallen world, says in verse 26, if you notice, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our, what? Our weakness. Our weakness. We all experience weaknesses, don't we? Even through this present trial. It's hard. Lord, what's happening? I'm perplexed. Father, have you abandoned us? Have you abandoned us? We all are weak and experience weakness. And in those moments of weakness, we don't even know what to say sometimes, what to pray for. And God knows this, and Paul knows this from his own example. Look at verse 26. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts, namely the Spirit, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Brothers and sisters, take comfort. Take take comfort that in those moments of great weakness, God says to us, I am with you. I am with you. The Spirit, the Perikletos, the Helper, the Comforter, the Illuminator is present to aid us, to grant us grace in those moments when we are weak. I love 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where the Lord Jesus says to the Apostle Paul in the midst of his own weakness, My Grace is sufficient for you. My grace is all you need, Paul, for power, namely his power. Christ's power is perfected in weakness, namely Paul's weakness. And then Hebrews chapter four, verse 16. Christians are told to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. So God wants us to come to him in the moments of our weakness, even through these present troubling times. Are you doing that? Are you coming to the throne of grace? Seeking for God's help. Note also the the great assurance that we have even when suffering and experiencing difficult times. We love Romans 8.28, don't we? And we know, we're convinced in other words, that God causes all things to work together for good. And here's the key, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior have turned from their sins, confessed their sins to their Creator, and come to Him and said, Lord, it is not by my performance, my, not by my good works. I bring hands, empty hands of faith to, you, to the foot of the cross. Please save me. Please rescue me. I put my trust in Jesus. To those, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, God works all things together for good, for their good. How comforting. How comforting that though we may not always have answers to troubling times, we can rest assured that God is for us. And then notice verse twenty-nine. We get this series of, of of statements like unbreakable chain links of God's work in our in the Christian Christian's life. Look at verse twenty-nine. For those whom He foreknew, there's the first chain link. He also predestined second chain link to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, third chain link. And these whom he called, he also justified, fourth chain link. And these whom he justified, he also glorified, fifth chain link. Each of these are like links on a chain forged by God and protected by the power of God. So that you and I, Christian, who have put our trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, can rest in him. Reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn there with me. First Peter chapter 1, wonderful passage for us, reminding us of the assurance that we have and the fact that we are protected by the power of our great God. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, and listen to this, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, this hope is found in the person and the work of Christ who rose from the dead. To obtain an inheritance. What about this inheritance? An inheritance which is imperishable, that is not liable to decay. and undefiled, that is unpolluted and unstained by evil, as opposed to an earthly inheritance that, is, that can fade away and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, faith in Christ, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, Christ, you love him. I pray that that's your heart. That's the heart of the Christian. You love Christ. You cherish Christ. You value Christ because he saved you from your sins, because he died for your sins, rescued you from God's punishment. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Wow. Wow. In the face of suffering and troubled times, what Peter is doing is he's calling these persecuted Christians to a God-glorifying perspective that moves them to a joyful anticipation of future glory found at the revelation and return of Jesus Christ. And by the way, for, for Peter's first century readers, things only got worse. Some were tortured for their faith. Some were crucified. Some were burned at the stake. Some were fed to savage animals, had their loved ones massacred, on and on and on and on and on, experienced experience hunger and, and thirst. The same thing is happening to many of our brethren in other countries, by the way. They're being persecuted. They have for a long time experience things that we might never experience in this country. They have persevered through major sicknesses with no medicine available, diseases, human atrocities, scarce resources like food and water. I've seen it with my very eyes. I've gone to some of these countries in Southeast Asia and, and Latin America where we have brethren who are dying of hunger. I've seen it. And this suffering... I want you to know this. What I observed in having gone to some of these places is that this suffering stimulates, moves, awakens in them a greater anticipation for a time when everything will be made right through the on the basis of Jesus' person and his work on the cross. This is what trying times must stimulate in us as well, brethren. How easy it is in times of trouble to lose perspective, right? To Focus on the earthly, on the temporal. And I want to ask you right now, what effects has this present trial and these troubling times had on you? How has this impacted you? What is going on in your thinking? What are you characterized by right now as, you, as we face these troubling times? Is your heart only fearful? only anxious, only worried, perhaps angry and frustrated at God? Or has this stimulated in you a greater desire to see Jesus return? Listen to me, don't waste your trial. I have been praying that God would allow me, Lord, please don't let me waste this trial. That you're bringing to my life and to my family and to our church and to our brethren in this country and all over the world. Let us not waste this trial. Let us understand those, know those lessons that you're trying to teach us. What are you trying to teach us about yourself? What are you trying to teach us about longing for Jesus Christ's return? What are you trying to tell us about your mission of the, the hope found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we need to proclaim to a lost and dying world? Help us to learn those lessons and not waste this trial. Let's not forget that one of the primary reasons that God brings these types of troubles and many others to, to, into our lives is to make us long for His Son. Long for the return of Jesus. Long for his reign. When Revelation says that there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. We will reign in a new heavens and a new earth for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ with our King. We should long for this. We should be moved to cry out, Maranatha, oh come Lord Jesus, come quickly should be the cry of our hearts. All the more. God doesn't want His people, brothers and sisters, in survival mode. He doesn't want us to be in survival mode. He wants us to give Him glory as we live well under this trial by His grace and His grace alone. Because, yes, you and I are weak. And we cannot do this. We cannot live well and have the right perspective on our own. We need His help. So a God-glorifying perspective is shaped by right thinking stimulates joyful anticipation of future glory at the return of Christ who will make all things new. And thirdly, a God-glorifying perspective spurs us on to gospel conduct. A a God-glorifying perspective spurs us on to gospel conduct. We won't have time to look at this extensively. But what I want you to just pause and reflect for a minute on are the actions of most of the people around you right now. I want to encourage you. Pause and reflect for a minute on what you see around you in our society. What are people's actions characterized by? And I don't want you to do this, by the way, in a critical or judgmental way. Because more than anything else, what our hearts must be moved towards is compassion for people right now as we see how people are responding. But what do you see? What do you see? What are most people doing? Anxious, despairing, isolation, frantically procuring as many physical resources as possible. It's not that people are not acting. It's not that people are not um, pursuing certain things right now. It's the fact that people are responding in very despairing kinds of ways, right? There's a great degree of hopelessness and even blame and anger and worry and anxiety, etc., etc. You've seen it and I've seen it. But what did the reality of a broken world spur on in Paul? It spurred him on to keep his eyes fixed on the mission of the gospel, right? Right? His own life and the lives of others. I mean, the book of Romans is all about his passion and zeal to proclaim the gospel to the Romans. He says this back in chapter 1, verse 15. I am eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. I am eager to impart some spiritual fruit to you, uh, Roman Christians. I am a debtor to both Greeks and to barbarians. I want to preach the gospel to all. He loved the people of Rome. Where some were well off, but the vast majority of the population in Rome suffered from lack of sanitation, scarcity in food and clean water, a lack of education, and they were exploited, exploitation. And eventually, for Christians who lived in Rome, severe persecution, deadly persecution they suffered. You see, Paul's world was not so different than our world, right? Right? And beloved, I think that in the face of trouble, we need to be people who are spurred on, like Paul, to the right kind of action for the sake of Christ and his gospel. So let me encourage and challenge us under this third point. Of some ways that right now, in the face of troubling times, we should walk worthy of the gospel. What does gospel conduct look like right now in the face of troubling times? First, we should not forget God. Don't forget God. We should be mindful of our need for Him. I'm reminded as I look at Scripture and my Scripture reading how time and time again God's people, in the face of trouble and perplexity, are spurred on to seek God, not run from Him. Spend some time in the Psalms, especially Psalms like Psalm 42. Where the psalmist there vividly describes his troubles that have led him to tears and to sadness and to despair. And yet repeatedly, amidst his troubles, this is what the psalmist says. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Yes, I'm hurting. But I'm preaching to myself, God is my hope. I will yet praise Him in the midst of my troubles. But Pastor Kempis, I need help with my perspective right now. Listen, God promises to give you that perspective. I love James chapter 1 verse 5 in the context of facing trials and troubles in the Christian life beyond our control, things that we cannot control, that we haven't brought upon ourselves. It says there in James 1.5 that we must ask God for wisdom if we need it, for he gives it to us generously and without reproach. He doesn't say, Oh, here comes campus again, asking for my help. When is this hard-headed guy going to learn? No, God gives us wisdom generously and without reproach. He is a good and kind heavenly father who wants you to come to him. He doesn't need you, but he wants you to go to him for there's grace at the foot of the cross. There's grace at his throne. And I love Job. You know the story. God took Job's family, Job's servants, his livelihood, even aspects of his health, And Job still, in Job 13.15, says this, Though God slay me, I will hope in Him. And in Job 19.25, For I know my Redeemer lives, and in the end He will reign on the earth. That's joyful anticipation right there, stimulated by Job's suffering. He longed for his Redeemer. Don't forget about God, beloved. Don't forget about God. Secondly, We should not forget one another. We should not forget one another. We must be mindful of our responsibility to love one another, to practice kindness towards one another, to be thoughtful towards one another. Please hear me. None of us are exempt during this time from practicing the one another's for as long as this thing lasts. None of us are. We're stuck with one another, okay? Even if by social media. When you do a study on the one another's in the New Testament, so many of the one another's in the New Testament were given to believers who were suffering in trials, persecuted, has, had physical and spiritual troubles as we have, and yet they were still commanded as those who are in Christ to love one another via the one another's. And so, within even our own limitations, can I encourage us to reach out to care for one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We have that responsibility. Present hardships don't excuse or justify selfish or self-centered living. That drives us to simply be focused on ourselves. How do I feel right now? What am I worried about? What are my needs right now? Hear me, this is a time to meet other people's needs, to be others-focused as well. Check in with others. How are you feeling, brother or sister? What are those needs that you have right now? How can I be praying for you, lifting lifting you up before the throne of God? How can I be doing that? Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And in that context, in chapter 2, verses 5 and following of Philippians, that's what Christ did, who humbled himself and laid down his life for us to pay for our sins on the cross. Thirdly, Thirdly, and this is for men, men, if you're out there, I want you to pay special attention right now. This is for us who are men, me included, your elders and leaders included. Men, don't forget to lead. Don't forget to lead. I see too many men right now cowering away from leading their families in the midst of this. I see too many men being passive, fearful, anxious, being escapists, suppressing their feelings or or the feelings of others and focusing on their own. Don't forget to lead. Men, this is not the time to go AWOL, to abandon your role of leading your family, your wife and kids and others. This is a time, by the grace of God, for you and I to man up. To lead our family well. And step in, by the grace of God, to lead others and be perspective shapers. That's what we are. We have a responsibility, men, during this time, beginning with our, in our home and out into society and in the church, to be perspective shapers. Let it be God's word. Let it be God's word that we point people to. This is a time to lead your wife and family by taking initiative, opening up God's Word, and just reading together, and just praying with your family, praying with your dear wife, praying with your kids. And when you see worry and anxiety, or you feel that in your own heart, hey, kids, hey, cu- cu- let's gather together. What does this passage here teach us about God? How great is He? Let's talk about his goodness and his love and his power and his sovereignty and his mercy and his justice and his compassion and his severity towards sin. What do we learn, guys, about, about who God is? And how do these passages here that we're reading, how are we called to respond in the midst of our trials and difficult times? Men, lead your family into biblical thinking, God-glorifying kinds of thinking, a God-glorifying perspective. Someone will shape your family's perspective right now. Let it be God through you as you take loving and courageous action to lead your family. Amen? I think I heard an amen through cyberspace there. Or my brethren up in the sound booth said amen. Thanks, brethren. Thanks. Fourth, fourth. Don't forget to show compassion. Don't forget Compassion. We should be mindful of our witness for Christ and love for the world. For the world. The Great Commission and the call to make disciples doesn't end and doesn't cease because we are facing troubles. It simply looks very different right now, right? It looks different right now. Just read church history. Or even in the face of trouble and great persecution, church history tells us that the blood of the martyrs was the seed for the church. In other words, when suffering and trouble was most intense and even Christians were dying, that's when God was glorified through their faithful witness and drew people to himself in a saving way. So look for opportunities given our limitations to continue speaking of the hope of Christ to people out of a heart of compassion. And I'm so sad by so many Christians right now losing their witness all over social media. Anxious, expressing fear and anxiety and worry and frustration. Amazing to me. Realize that, that, listen to me, our convictions are either confirmed or denied in the eyes of the world depending on how we respond right now to the present troubling times. As Christians, we grieve and are sad, yes, but we don't do it as those who have no hope. Remember, Paul's thinking was, was, had substance underlying it. And that part of that was the great reality of the hope that he had in Jesus Christ, that one day Jesus would return and all these things would be made new. And so that, that caused him to all the more focus on preaching Christ and him crucified so that people would have that hope. Let us be those kinds of people right now. Finally, fifth, and this is for those of you who are not Christians. And I want to speak to you directly right now who have not given your life to the Lord. Can I exhort you? Don't forget about your soul. Don't forget about your soul. Don't neglect your soul. You must be mindful now more than ever of the well-being of your soul. You know what times like these should get you thinking about? How frail and brief life is that you are not in control as maybe you thought you were none of us are that our lives are but a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away one moment we're here and the next moment we're not and you need to realize this hear me the coronavirus is not your greatest enemy or problem This disease is not your greatest enemy or your greatest problem. Your greatest problem and your disease is your sin against a holy and righteous God. That's your greatest problem. Your problem is your sin. Your sin that will bring about sure death. Your sin that separates you from a holy and righteous creator who created you to glorify him and enjoy him now and forever. Sin separates you from God. It estranges you from God. But here's the good news. Christ came for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to live, to die, to pay for sins, to rise again that those who put their trust in Him And Him alone can be forgiven and reconciled to God. And listen, if you belong to Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how or when you die because you can find your rest in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. This is not the time for you to play games with your soul. If you were to die today, where would your soul go? Death is sure be it by a deadly disease or in other ways. Recognize that currently people are dying of cancer, of heart disease, of diabetes, of many other things, accidents, you name it. There are all kinds of people dying. You will die one way or the other. When it's your time, you will go. Where would your soul go? Where is your soul headed? Because dying in this lifetime is the least of your worries if you're not in Christ. There's the possibility if you reject God's provision of salvation through, through Jesus Christ, there's the, the sure reality that forever and ever and ever, if you reject God's loving provision for the forgiveness of your sins and the payment of your sins in Jesus Christ, that you will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Hell is a reality. Hell is real, a real place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, not for those who are great sinners who have cremated unpardonable sins in this world, but for those who have rejected God's provision found in Jesus Christ for the payment of your sins that you might be forgiven. Death comes to us all in various ways. Repent of your sins today. Trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I plead with you to be made right with God. Take your soul seriously during this time. You can find rest in Christ. And, beloved, for those of us who are believers, I'll exhort you the way that I exhorted you at the beginning. Let us not waste this trial. Don't waste this trial. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want His children, Christians, to be in survival mode, but He wants us to live well under this trial, glorify Him by His grace. And He can give us grace to do that. Amen? Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we want to be a worshiping and God-glorifying people, not just in calm times, but especially in troubling times such as these. Father, give us the grace to do that. Father, we are weak. You know that. Help us by your grace to be people who have a right perspective, who are going to your word and to who you are and to the gospel of your son and to the great truths that we know in your word in the Bible, that those truths would shape our thinking. And that as we see the suffering around us and the sadness and the sorrow and the brokenness, that, Father, that would stimulate in us a desire to see Jesus return and cry out, Lord, come quickly. And that, Father, we would be motivated to gospel action. That we would be spurred on as we see the suffering around us, all the more to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and proclaim the hope of Christ to a lost and dying world. Father, we pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. He closes out Romans chapter 8. He leaves us with some powerful and reassuring Word centered on God's love for us in Jesus Christ. And I want to end by reading Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect?